We're going to talk about John chapter 6, um, looking at some of Jesus' teachings here. And as Titus was reading, I hope that you were going, this is a weird text. It really is. Um, so I want to talk a, a little bit first about some of the context, just like what's What's happening around this? So the first verse says, on the next day. So we're going to kind of go back. Well, what happened yesterday? All right. Quick review. So Jesus just fed, miraculously, 5,000 people, five loaves, two fish. And they liked that, as you can imagine. And so they wanted to make him king. Um, they're like, if this guy was our king, we would never go hungry. It'd be so good. I mean, it's a good thing they didn't see him walking on the water and calming the storm, which is what happened next, because then they definitely would have wanted him to be their king, because, like, can you imagine how awesome that would be, right? But that's not what he came for. And so he's like, ah, kind of missing the point. So he just jets. He, like, slips out of the crowd, goes up on the mountain to be alone. The disciples are like, well, we don't know where Jesus is, so they take off too. Um, they get in a boat start headed across the sea, big storm comes, they're scared to death, and then Jesus just shows up, walking across the water, like no big deal, and John says in verse 21, they gladly welcome him into the boat, and then he says, and immediately the boat was where they were going. Um, so that's kind of weird, like were they actually at the edge of the water and they just didn't realize it? No, I don't think so. We have to actually scan back a little bit and look at the whole we're not going to look at the whole Gospel of John this morning, but like, what was the reason that John was writing? What was the point? Um, take this book in its real literary form and context. So John's Gospel is not a synoptic Gospel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are. means they were written pretty much in the same order, same way, same structure, and right after Jesus had ascended into heaven. Uh, John was written way later. John's an old man kind of reminiscing back on his time with Jesus before the resurrection and ascension. And John kind of has a bit of an axe to grind when he's writing the story. Um, and he's honest about that. It says in uh, John chapter 20, verse 30, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. He's like, I couldn't write everything, right? But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So why did John write this story? One, so that his readers could believe that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. And second, so that by believing, we could have life in Jesus' name. Now, why is that important? Because what we're going to see is that John is about to really lean into an idea in the story that he's going to circle back to several times throughout the rest of the book, and so we need to understand that he's not telling, just like telling the story of what Jesus began to do before he established the church, like Luke was, for example. But rather, John's trying to drive home just a couple of points. Uh, and so as he tells the story, he's going to ignore certain details, and he's going to pause to really highlight and drill into other details when it serves his purpose for writing. And today... We get to interact with one of those ideas that John kind of got, like, obsessed with, I think. Um, like, he wrote about it a lot in his gospel, but it's also all over his epistles and even in the Revelation. Uh, I think the reason that he focuses on this theme that we'll talk about, abiding in Christ, I think the reason he focuses on it is that Jesus taught about it probably a, a good bit, 
And the message really impacted John personally uh, in a big way. I think that John had a major transformation, a paradigm shift from the way that he kind of grew up thinking in this religious Judaism. Um, big paradigm shift because of this idea, and it was so impactful that he just couldn't help but to write about it every time he got an opportunity. Um, I don't know that. I'm just speculating, but uh, part of the reason I think that is that when I first came face-to-face -face with this reality in our text some 20 years ago, it changed my entire life. Um, I had been following Jesus for like 10 or 11 years, uh, reading my Bible, praying every day, leading others to Jesus, leading music in the church youth group and college ministry, and I just missed it. Um, so when we get there in the text, I'll, I'll try to show you what the Lord showed me, but prepare yourselves on, on this one. John's about to hit us pretty hard with one of, I think, one of his favorite of Jesus's teachings, definitely my favorite of Jesus's teachings, and uh, we get to get there today, so stay tuned for that. Uh, we haven't even gotten to our text yet, so we're still in the boat talking about context. Jesus got into the boat. Uh, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record that Jesus gets in the boat, and like there's a calming of the storm, but John records it just slightly differently because in all of chapter 6, we get the feeding of the 5,000, and then we've got the getting in the boat, and then today we get to look at this dialogue about bread and, and blood, right? Um, he's just been talking about bread and what the miracles or the signs pointed to, and the whole point of this walking on the water story actually fits right into what John is trying to be sure that we see and the whole chapter, so he ignores some details so that we don't miss the point of that miracle, which is really kind of John, uh, because the people who were seeing the miracles were just missing the point, like all over the place. And so John's like, you know, I'm just going to give them the important part and not the extra details that would distract them. And here's what that is. It's not that Jesus is going to calm every storm in your life. That's not the point. Of, of the, that story. Uh, it's that in the storm, he gets in the boat with you. And that's what John wants us to see. Jesus' presence with the disciples in the boat, his very presence was the miracle. He was the gift. So John records that, and then he says, and they got where they were going. It's like, fast forward to the next part of the story, because I got more to show you. And that's where we're at today. Okay, so you've got to have that in the back of your mind because John wants that to be lingering. Okay? And then we get into our story. Now, one more note about context before we get into the meat of the passage. Uh, next week, Justin will be talking to us about the end of this chapter. And we're going to see a whole bunch of Jesus' followers just pack up and leave because they just couldn't get down with what he's going to say to them in our passage today. They're just like, Mm -mm. Nope, that's too much, too weird, and they just straight up go home. Uh, so, if what we're about to look at seems confusing or difficult or even offensive, it's working. Uh, it's doing what Jesus wanted it to do. The high challenge that Jesus uh, is going to bring us today is meant to force us to come to terms with some tough questions. Uh, am I really following Jesus at all? 
Am I doing, am I following Jesus for the right reasons, in the right way? Do I even want to? So Jesus is going to speak to us in a way that forces us to wrestle with the posture and position of our hearts, like um, he's going to be pretty sensational with his language to make us push back from the table a bit and examine our motives and our relationship with him, which is really good, but that doesn't mean it's easy. So uh, if you're a little uncomfortable with the passage, you should be. That's a gift. The invitation today is just like Jacob in the Old Testament wrestled with the Lord until he got that blessing from God. We get to wrestle with the Lord in the passage today. And my prayer is that we come away with the blessing as well. Okay? So Lord help us. Here we go. Uh, we're just going to dive into this passage, take it in some big chunks, okay? Um, because it's a long passage. We, we couldn't take it word by word or even sentence by sentence. So we're going to take it in just some big pieces, uh, and we'll break it down a section at a time and just talk about what does it say, what does it mean, and how, how should it affect us today. Okay, there's a couple different ways that we could approach a passage. I actually think this is a, a really good way in your personal study to ask, what do I see God doing in this text, and what do I see people doing in this text? That's a good way to kind of get a view of what's happening here. So if we look at this pa passage from the perspective of the people, it becomes really clear. First of all, first little section is them missing the point, okay? The second section, missing the point again, all right? Uh, third, just more missing the point. Fourth, some grumbling and continuing to miss the point. And then finally, getting grossed out, uh, mostly because they've totally missed the point. And that's the story. So if you're looking for someone to relate to, the people in the story, uh, I can relate to them a lot. Um, but as we approach it, you'll see this theme repeated, and you'll see the kindness of Jesus uh, to walk along with them in it. Um, as I was looking even at the rest of the story of John up to today, we've seen this happen a lot. You know, Jesus is talking to people, uh, and they're, they're not seeing him for who he really is, right? They're either focused on the miracles or he's talking to them like the woman at the well, and he's like, well, I'm going to give you water that when you drink of it, you'll never be thirsty again. She's like, let me get my family. That sounds good. And he's like, I'm the water. Like, it's a metaphor, right? But just people just don't get it over and over and over again. Um, and it reminded me of uh, a great essay, and I'd encourage you all to read the whole thing. It's beautiful, uh, by C.S. Lewis called... Uh, meditation in a tool shed. But I just want to read together the first uh, couple of paragraphs as a way to kind of frame an analogy as we look at the work, the person and work of Jesus. Lewis said, I was standing today in a dark tool shed. The sun was shining outside and through the crack at the top of the door, there came a sunbeam. From where I stood, that beam of light with the specks of dust floating in it was the most striking thing in the place. Everything else was almost pitch black. I was seeing the beam, not seeing things by it. So you, you can imagine that. You're in a dark tool shed. You can't see anything, but then you notice this beam of light, and because of the dust, you can actually see the beam of light. You guys are all with me? Yeah? Okay. Then I moved, he says, so that the beam fell on my eyes. Instantly, the whole previous picture vanished. 
I saw no tool shed, and above all, no beam. Instead, I saw, framed in the irregular cranny at the top of the door, green leaves moving on the branches of a tree outside. And beyond that, 90-odd million miles away, the sun. Looking along the beam and looking at the beam are very different experiences. Looking along the beam and looking at the beam are very different experiences. And so if we take that analogy, what the people that Jesus was interacting with were doing was looking at the beam. And they just, they just hadn't stepped over to look along the beam to see him for who he really was. Okay, the, they were focused in this passage on bread, that what they really wanted was another free meal. Right? That's like kind of what they keep asking Jesus for. But that's just looking at the beam. Okay, The point, the big idea of the passage, if we look along the beam, is that Jesus is all we need. Okay, so if you're taking notes, like, let that rock sink to the bottom. That's a big one. Jesus is all we need. And so we approach this passage with, uh, we kind of see ourselves in the people who missed the point, but now, hey, we're enlightened by the Word of God and the Holy Spirit, and we can go, hey, Jesus is all we need. That's what we've got to keep seeing as he's talking, okay? So let's read together, starting in verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus wasn't there, nor his disciples, they themselves got in the boats and went to, to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you were seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Okay, so there's a lot there. There's just a couple of ideas to tune into this morning. First, we see Jesus just flat out tells them their hearts. He looks into their souls and he says, uh, this, is, this is where you're at, right? Like, they're like, Jesus, where you been? And he's like, mm -mm, you don't care about me. You just want something from me. He's like, hey, you're not looking for me because you saw the signs, which if they were look along the beam, those signs pointed to his deity. This is God. In flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. Man, no. Instead, they're coming around in hopes of another free meal, and he just calls that out. You're looking for a gift. You're not coming for the giver. Okay? Now, this highlights a theology that says, if you follow Jesus, your life will be better. If you do the right things, you go to church, pay your tithes, talk to the right people, don't talk to the wrong ones, don't cheat on your spouse, do the good things. If you do, then you won't go hungry. God will take care of you. You'll have a nice house, a nice car, hot wife, your kids won't be annoying. Uh, you'll get that promotion or that big bonus at work. Following Jesus will bring prosperity. And Jesus says, you're missing the point. Jesus is the point. This lie of do good equals get good from God is demonic. It's actually 
one of the oldest lies in history, but it's been dressed up so well over thousands of years that it often passes as truth. Here's the thing, though. The enemy of our souls wants nothing more than to lead God's sheep astray. And the so-called prosperity gospel is a path that leads many off a cliff to their demise. Jesus is here giving us an opportunity to step back and look at what we're doing. Do we want the storm to pass so we can be happy and comfortable again? Or do we just want Jesus in the boat with us, even if the storm doesn't pass? See, the lie would have us walking on a path that's comfortable, but out on the horizon is a cliff. And if we just follow that path, we'll fall off the cliff. And Jesus says, step back. Don't just look down at the comfortable path, but look around. Are you on a path that leads to death, or are you on a path that leads to a mountain of eternal joy? That's the crossroads that we're at today. There's an old hymn by Fanny Crosby written in 1879 that says, Take the world, but give me Jesus. Sweetest comfort of my soul, with the Savior watching o'er me, I can sing, though thunders roll. Is that the posture of your heart this morning? Jesus wants to push on that. And so he gently corrects his audience. He says, that food that you're seeking is going to perish. It's not going to satisfy you forever. You should stop worrying so much about the physical reality and focus your attention on the eternal. Here's the deal. He's, he's actually about to go on, uh, especially in verse 44 and following, to talk about the fact that on the last day, Jesus is going to raise up, physically raised from the dead, all those who God has drawn to him, who have believed in Christ alone for their salvation. So God does care about the body uh, so much that he's going to resurrect it. He does care about making us full, well, strong, happy. But those promises are on the other side of history. Right now, Jesus isn't primarily concerned with removing the storms or giving us free bread, although he does do those things sometimes. But they aren't his primary concerns. Currently, his primary concern is not helping us escape the storm, but rather it's getting in the boat with us. That's what he came to do. Emmanuel, God with us. So Jesus uses this language of working for bread, working for bread that leads to eternal life, working for bread that perishes. And the people do what? Miss the, yeah, miss the point. Uh, they get really tripped up on it. Um, and this was my story too. Uh, I was like those people without knowing it uh, for a really long time. So I said that one of the main ideas of the book of John changed my life. And this is that idea. It changed my life. I think it changed John's life. And, and that's why he just can't stop talking about it. That's why I haven't stopped talking about it for two decades. Um, this, this mistake that I made, the mistake that the people Jesus was talking to uh, made is a really common one. Um, I'm not just saying that to make myself feel better. I'm trying to say, like, you, you probably have made this mistake too. Uh, it's not, like, exclusive to first century Jews or Southern Baptists in the 80s and 90s. Uh, this is, like, a people problem. Uh, human nature problem, factory default settings, this feature's built in. Uh, whether you're Mormon or Catholic or Pentecostal, non-denominational, 
Presbyterian, whatever. This is the way we naturally think. And it's what most of our world religions are either subtly or, in a lot of cases, explicitly built upon. It's the idea, uh, as the text would put it, uh, people saying, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And that's a good thing, right? Like, let's do the works of God. Jesus said, do the things, let's do the things. Give us the list, Jesus. Tell us what to do, and we'll do it. Tell me what to do to get that free bread that lasts forever, and I will do it. I will work so good. I will do it so hard, better than anybody. Just tell me what it is. That's natural. And Jesus says, I'll tell you what to do. And so we're like, sweet. And he says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Friends, that idea kind of wrecked me, changed my life. And I have prayed for all of you, many of you by name this week. Um that it would change yours too. Um, it honestly took me about a year of really wrestling this out with some other brothers and sisters, and maybe you're looking at this and you're like, that's super simple, good for you. Um, but it was tough for me to really take hold of this reality. But when it stuck, like when the Lord even initially kind of hit me with it, it was like suddenly I started... Um, started seeing things through different eyes. And it was so freeing to know that God didn't expect me to fix anything about myself um, or anyone else or anything else. He wasn't looking for me to do anything. He just wanted to hang out with me. Uh, and, and that through that intimacy with him, through the relationship itself, he would produce those good works, those things that... I was trying to do before without him. Um, but he was going to do all the work, and I was just going to get to be along for the ride, like hanging out with your dad in the workshop. Uh, God doesn't want us to do anything. He simply wants us to believe in Jesus. And when we do, we experience a love and peace and freedom that we were made for. At some level, I think we know that we're made for that, but we just couldn't see it. I couldn't see it because of the spiritual blinders that we're born with. And so God says, cease striving. The psalm says, be still and know that I'm God. I will be exalted. And that's what he said to me. Um, as my friends and I uh, continued to wrestle with this reality and talking a lot about John chapter 15, we, um, we were praying together one Thursday night, and my friend Nathan said, it's like we were created to be and not to do. Which is like, oh, that's pretty cool, Nathan. And then our friend Andy, who uh, went on to be a missionary in Korea for many years, he said, we were created to be and not to do, but out of the being comes the doing. Let that one sink in. We were created to be and not to do, but out of the being comes the doing. Um, that one statement became a rallying point for us. Uh, we would be, you know, working through, you know, God was sanctifying us. We were studying the word together, and that phrase would come up over and over. When I started uh, leaning on my own understanding instead of, in all my ways, acknowledging him. 
Um, like we, we looked around in that moment when Andy said that, and it was like, we all knew that God had just done something. It's like solidified an idea in our hearts and minds. I knew that I was different. Uh, that through so much study and dialogue and prayer, the Lord had been chipping away at my religion, and it finally came into view, this sculpture that he was making in my heart and mind. I was created to be and not to do. And out of the being comes the doing. Um, I hope that that will set you free as well. It's not that faith can ever be divorced from action. James chapter 2, verse 26 makes that really clear. Faith without works is dead. But it's that through our relationship with God, he produces the works. So he says in John chapter 15, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. You see, I was trying to produce the fruit of righteousness on my own without realizing that I was a dried-up branch laying alone on the ground. And he lovingly picked me up and grafted me into the vine. And he said, rest in me. Just be, and I'll produce the fruit through you. So he says to the people here, the work of God is to believe in Jesus. And if that doesn't sound like work, it's because it's really not. It's a restful work. Now, the folks that Jesus is talking to, he's offering them so much more than their mind set on the flesh could comprehend. It's like they're just hungry for some bread, right? He's, he's shouting freedom from the roof, and their elevator just doesn't go to the top floor, right? I mean, he's just dropped this huge bomb on them, and they're like, okay, well, uh, you want to give us some more of that free bread, you know? to prove what you're saying. I mean, that's literally what they, they said. You can look at it here. He says, hey, hey, Moses gave us bread, and Jesus is like, Moses didn't give you bread. My Father gives you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. All right, and so we can see that uh, verses 29 through 33 as we kind of move on down through this text. So they're kind of like, I guess, half listening when he's saying this. They're like, he's still talking about bread, right? Oh, yeah, totally still talking about bread. Okay, good, good, because I was just about to ask him for more of that free bread from yesterday. Maybe there's some leftovers. And their buddy's like, oh, you should totally ask him for some more bread. That's obviously what he's talking about. And so they do. Verse 34, they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And so this is where Jesus is like, guys, I'm not talking about bread. I'm the bread. I've been talking about me this whole time, right? That's... Uh, John Piper said it this way, Jesus didn't come to give us bread. He came to be our bread. Jesus came to satisfy us with himself. And that's what he's really trying to get across here. Uh, now, he gives a bit of explanation in verse 35, really through like 46, of why they aren't getting it. And it's basically this reality that we're all born with spiritual blinders on. And God has to remove those blinders. But the really amazing thing that Jesus says in verse 39 is that if we believe in Jesus, if we're resting, or as he's going to say in just a second, abiding in him, we have nothing to worry about. Let's look at uh, verses 35 to 40. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. 
Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, that's hope, right? Like, what a gift that when we're in Christ, we have nothing to worry about. He's, it's sure. He will come back for us. But what do the people do? Oh, man, they grumble, and they just keep what? Missing the point. Okay, you guys still with me? Okay, cool. Yeah, the answer to any question I ask you this morning is probably going to be missing the point, okay? Um, so they said in verse 42, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? They just don't get it. They're face to face with God himself, and they're too limited by their upbringing, their culture, their family history. They're too limited to see him for who he really is. And because of it, they miss the blessing of fellowship with him. They miss it in this life, and they will miss it in the life to come. And Jesus says basically as much in verses 37 to 40. He says, whoever comes to him, he will by no means cast out. He's like, it's, it's free, like, come on. But they're grumbling, and they don't get it, and they don't like it. And so Jesus says, starting in verse 43, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now that word draw in the original Greek, pretty interesting, it's the word halkio, which is the same word that's used in Acts 16, 19, when it says that they dragged Paul and Silas before the, into the marketplace. Right, so like they didn't stand in the market and go like, hey, Paul and Silas, like it's so nice over here. Just come check it out. Like They didn't want to be there. They went and got them and brought them to the marketplace. And the, and the point of Jesus using this word is that unless God does something to us to overcome our natural inclinations, to draw us out of our natural self, we won't come to Jesus. Um, we'll be just like I was for those 10 years, trying to work out my salvation with fear and trembling, thinking I was pleasing God without his help. That's the natural way of things, and we, we won't get out of that death trap unless God draws our hearts, sometimes even drags us to see Jesus and savor Jesus, to be satisfied with Jesus alone. We we will stay enslaved to sin. We will stay enslaved to law until God acts on us to turn our affections to himself. And some of you may be feeling that drawing and that dragging and that changing in your hearts right now. Rejoice. That's a gift of God. We're, we're saved by grace through faith. And that's not a result of works, lest anyone should boast. It's a gift of God. What a gift. So when God does that helkio, drawing, dragging, our natural and free response is to say, God, I'm sorry, 
for trying to do it all myself. I need rest. I give myself fully to you, and I want to stop doing and start being, just hanging out with you while you work. Arturo Azurdia said, faith is a rational response to revelation. So if you're seeing Jesus for the first time or in fresh light, I would just say faith is a rational response to revelation. Let's look at the last bit of this passage here as we close it out, starting in verse 43. Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. So he's talking about the Holy Spirit and dwelling Christians to teach us, literally to illuminate the Word of God to us. They will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So when the Holy Spirit enters our hearts, begins to illuminate our minds, he says, we come, to, we come to Jesus. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. He says, they're, they're dead. That bread didn't work, right? Not for very long. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. He says, I'm, I'm going to die for you so that you can live forever. I'm going to die in your place, he says. He was crushed for our iniquities. And so, I mean, what happens? Revival breaks out, right? People are like, oh, cool, that's what we were waiting to hear. No, what do they do instead? Missed the point. Yeah, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. It's okay if that seems weird to you, it is weird. Um, but Jesus is being metaphorical and sensational. But the people tragically just don't see it. They don't get the metaphor. Um, thankfully, John got it eventually, praise God. And he wrote this down for us so that many years later, uh, we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. He's talking about abiding in him, which means to rest and remain with Jesus. And when he talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, he's trying to draw our minds to a spiritual reality that Paul later called the mystery of Christ in us and us in him. It's foreshadowing of the Lord's Supper, where he would formally invite his disciples into his family by symbolically showing them that his body would be broken for us 
and that by the spilling of his blood, he would make a new covenant, a covenant of grace with his people. The idea of the flesh and the blood here is meant to communicate closeness. Uh, That's why Paul in Ephesians 5 talks about intimate relationships. He talks about proper relationships between husbands and wives. And then he says that God instituted marriage in Genesis chapter 2. So he's quoting here. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. That's from Genesis 2. Hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then Paul says, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Jesus wants us to experience a spiritual intimacy and relationship with him right now and forever that is closer than the most intimate relationship we are able to experience as humans. So listen, friends, if you're, if you're looking forward to heaven, I mean, Jesus has been talking about the last day I'll raise them up. If you're looking forward to heaven because you'll get to see your dead loved ones, then you're missing the point of life. Just as much as the people Jesus was talking to missed it when he was standing right in front of them. The good news about heaven is that Jesus is there and we get to be with him. And everything else in all of existence pales in comparison to him. So much so that the the kindest, most excellent, most rewarding thing that God can ever give us in this life or the next is himself. And he offers us himself for free. He says the work of God is just to believe in the Son. So we were created to be, not to do. And out of the being comes the doing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that is living and active, that is sharper than any double-edged sword. Um, I pray that even through my broken and feeble attempt to um, hold it up before us, that you are at work. Lord, work through the presentation of your word, work in spite of my presentation of your word, to call all men to yourself. God, I pray for uh, my friends who are here today um, that you would, in a new way, set us free from the bondage to man-made religion that we all grow up with it built into us, that we seek to please you by our own means when you're just saying, the work of God is to believe in the Son. Abide in me and I in you and you'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Lord, help us to see that and really be set free by it. Give us rest, Lord. God, as we move uh, forward in our time together to a time of response, I pray that you would work mightily in the hearts uh, and minds of the people here, Lord, uh, and let us celebrate well that you have indeed set us free. He who the Son sets free is free indeed. In Jesus' name.